Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we interview inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I hope you're having an absolutely fantastic day. I'm doing very well myself. Thank you very much. And we have a wonderful episode lined up for you today. This week's episode is another of our collaborations with Yoga Australia and contains a recorded conversation between myself, co-host Joe Stewart and Josie Goosens. Josie Goosens was the first president of Yoga Australia back when it was known as the Yoga Teachers Association. Josie has a background in nursing and is a certified naturopath. She also lectures in anatomy and physiology and was one of Jo's teachers back when she studied at the CAE for her yoga teaching diploma way back in the day. We cover all sorts of great stuff on the origins of the Yoga Teachers Association, some of the history and background of the Gita School, and a whole lot more. It's a great conversation, but before we get on to that, I just wanted to ask if you could please rate, review, or subscribe to the Flow Artist Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps new people discover the podcast, and we would all love that, right? If you'd like to send us some feedback or ask a question, you can join the Flow Artist community on Facebook or comment on our website, podcast.flowartist.com. All right, that's enough of me asking you to do stuff. Let's get into our conversation with Josie Goosens. Perhaps we could just start with you telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. I was born in Holland and we immigrated out here when I was eight, moved to the Dandenongs and spent most of my childhood, I suppose, in the Dandenongs or around there, then went nursing for three years at St V's in Melbourne. So that took three years out of my life and then I went overseas because I needed to go back to where I came from. When I came back, it was a whole series of different jobs. Some of them were nursing, some of them were allied health fields, but I guess it's always been a health field that I was involved in. And so how did you discover yoga? I discovered it when I was in secondary school. We had PE classes and I hated PE classes. They were just so boring. They were just horrible. But the last two years of my secondary school, we had this PE teacher that came in and she was Russian. She was really tall and she was big, but she carried herself with such grace that you couldn't, and she had such a presence. And I was very shy and I was very introverted and I was very unconfident, if that's that's the word, didn't have a lot of confidence in myself at all. And I thought, I want what she's got. Apparently she did a lot of yoga and that's what she told some of the students. So that started it off. I found a book and I used to do a couple of poses before I went to bed after studying. That's where my journey started. But I didn't actually go formally to a class until I came back from overseas because nursing doesn't give you the time. It doesn't give you the time away. It doesn't give you, you know, you don't know what shifts you're going to be on. So you can't commit to anything. And so when you started going to actual yoga classes, you started at the Gita School of Yoga, right? Yep, because I found an ad at the back of the age that had, it was in there for years, this tiny little ad that said Gita Yoga. So it was in Alfred Place and I was living in Carlton, I think, at the time. So I went and did a beginner's course with a friend of mine 
and went into the general class and didn't like it. Didn't like the general class at all. So I left. Do you remember what you didn't like about it? At the time, I didn't feel included and I felt it was very different from the beginner's course. So there was no transition into something. So I left and then I came back probably a couple of years later and did a repeat beginners. I went into a general class and still didn't like it. So I left again. But it was always at the back of my mind and there wasn't a lot of yoga places around in the 70s. So I ended up going back again and this time it worked. So that's where my journey started. For people who don't know much about Geisha, I think they were probably one of the first yoga studios in Melbourne, right? And they've got quite a different approach and a bit of a different philosophy. Would you like to kind of give us a little insight into their history and their approach? So Margaret Sagesman started the school, and I can't remember what year it is. That's not... That's not important. <laughs> that's probably not important. And she didn't set herself up as a guru, so she set herself up to teach yoga to a Western community. So very few Sanskrit words were used. There was an explanation of what it was good for. So they, they have a set 10 asanas with variations of each of the 10. That makes up a general class and they can be done, they're done in a specific order, which is really nice when you're coming in there and you're stressed and you know sort of what's going to happen, you know what order it is. It might be a variation on the spine twist or it might be a variation on Pashimotasana or one of those, but you know what sort of sequence you're going to have. And that worked for me. So I used to make Thursday night my yoga night. I'd leave work and I was in a fairly high position, And but that night I always left on time. Never stayed late, never did. Sorry, but I'm going. This is my night. This is my night. This is my time. And it was one of those things, if you didn't do it, you didn't feel right for the following week. Their philosophy is probably they don't do the Sanskrit texts, but the concept, so it was much more, I think, looking back, a much more of a psychology session than a philosophy session. But the concept... In hindsight, what you can see now are very similar to the concepts that sit behind yoga philosophy, sit behind the eight limbs, for instance. Back in those early days when you were first starting to go to Gita, do you remember much about the Melbourne yoga landscape? Could you tell us much about that time? I know there was one in St Kilda. I worked in um, Paran, on the corner of Dandenong Road and Chapel Street. And I know there was one further down, I think, in Chapel Street in St Kilda, but I never went. It was one of those pictures that you saw of the Indian yogi and that doesn't gel with me. Yeah, it's like this isn't resonating with me. Sorry. This isn't who I am. This isn't who I am. And it was one of those things where it's, Gita, don't say you have to believe in something. You take it on. If it fits, use it. If it doesn't fit, throw it out. And was there a particular moment when you realised that you wanted to go deeper and to start teaching yoga? They'd done a couple of teacher training courses, so Lucille, that was different from the other teacher training courses, and I knew a couple of people that were doing it. I didn't do it that year because I had other things that I had to worry about. But I 
decided to do it. I went on a trip with them. They were very much into, into Egypt and a lot of that stuff, that, that esoteric stuff that sits around Egyptology. I went on a trip to Egypt with them and I knew that when I came back, if I didn't do the teacher training, then I would probably not do yoga anymore. So I did it for my own personal development. I didn't do it to teach. Never thought I'd teach. I assume you ended up teaching. So what actually happened there? I'm not sure. <laughs> it just evolved? I think it just evolved and it was I taught in there for a while and I did their relaxation postgraduate thing and that really appealed to me. I just think it's a wonderful process of doing hour-long relaxations and that just, it worked for me. So it worked for me on a, on a personal level of clearing out a whole lot of stuff. So that was one of the ones I did. And I ended up teaching, but I ended up teaching. It was one of those things where I thought I'd never be a teacher. But yeah, I did. Just as a little flashback, when you mentioned the Gita approach to guided relaxation, when you were my teacher in my teacher training course, and we had a little field trip to the Gita studio, they had this really special relaxation room that was all oh. kind of like fluffy lined. And I kind of remember it was like, almost like benches that go around the walls and it was all fluffy or is that just something that my mind came up with? There was a special relaxation room. There wasn't any benches but there were... Was it fluffy though? It was fluffy. There was lots of lots of pillows, lots of blankets. It was a very, a very nurturing room. So when you went in there for that session, it ran for an hour. There was about probably 20 minutes of moving into it. And then there was silence for another 20 minutes. And then it was 20 minutes of taking you out. And it was very nurturing, but you're very close to people. And what I noticed later on when I was doing relaxation, people needed more space. But at that time, you could literally, as you were lying flat, you could touch the person next to it, but you never did. And it was one of those things that later, and it was the same in, in the general class, people would be quite close to each other. Their personal space wasn't as big as what people's personal space is today. Something mm. else that's just occurred to me, when you mentioned your high school years, how you remember being kind of lacking in confidence and then seeking yoga as, I want what she's got, <laughs> I want to tap into some of that, and then you speak about actually having quite a high-powered job and then going on to be a teacher, which involves standing up in front of a room of people and kind of telling them what to do or at least guiding them on a journey. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like yoga helped you tap into that inner confidence? I think it did. And some of the workshops that Gita ran was also about taking away some of that stuff that you hold in that is negative, that doesn't actually belong to you anymore. And part of that was the way that they said, well, you know, take this on or listen to this. And if it fits for you, then take it on. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And I think that that is the, the growth that happens in, in that time. So but they're kind of empowering you to make decisions for yourself. They're empowering you to be your own person, not just to make decisions for yourself, but to be your own person and not to be what other people think you should be. So that for me, and, and I think part of that for me was coming out as an immigrant. You've lost everything. You've lost all your friends. You've lost all your family. And then, you know, kids at school are very cruel, you know, when they sort of talk around and say, go back home where you came from. We don't want you here and stuff. So there's all that sort of thing that you have to throw out as an adult. But there's also beliefs that you have or that you've been given as a child that you have to 
modify as an adult and say, that doesn't fit. I can't believe in that. I don't, I don't understand that. That doesn't sit with me. I can't live like that. And it's even something that continues as we learn more about yoga because there are a lot of different points of view and a lot of different lineages and even different understandings of how the body works. So I think there is a bit of a process of working out what feels right for you, what sits well with you, how you want to express things, what you want to teach. And I think that's really true. My medical background sort of, so I mix the energetics of yoga with the science of the body. People need to know what they're working with. So for me, that's always been the philosophy. If you know how you work, then you can do something about it. If you don't know how it works, nothing will happen. So that that science background that I've got very strongly sits for me in my te- in teaching yoga f- for me sits in there very well with the energetics that you have. I really loved your physiology lectures when I was doing my teacher training because that stuff is fascinating and it's a really great way to we learn more about ourselves on lots of levels through the practice of yoga but like learning how our own bodies works is really fascinating and it's also kind of interesting that unless you're doing a teacher training or seeking that information out we don't really get to learn these things as humans. No, and that was one of the things that I really loved about Lee's approach to getting that course accredited. There was a whole lot of science that sat in there as well as a whole lot of yoga and a whole lot of philosophy and a whole lot. It was a very eclectic course the way it was put together. And to me, it encompasses everything. It wasn't just, and more importantly, there was an eclectic thing about the lineage that, you know, the teachers that he had all came from different streams. Yeah. But they all fitted. That really appealed to me as well. And there was always that emphasis on, okay, you choose what you believe, what's right for you. And you do that as a teacher, but also a bit of an emphasis on well is when you teach other people, give them the space to have their own experience rather than telling them how it's going to be. And that to me was always that that is one of the most important things that I think as an adult, you have to make up your own mind. You have to evaluate it for what it means to you. And that was always my philosophy, which is why, you know, I find it very difficult to go into a religion or a lineage because I don't get the choice of choosing. And did you choose to become a trainer of teachers or is this also something that just (laughs) life just served it up to you? I think life just served it up to me. So Kay was also part of Gita and I got to know Kay quite well and she was interested in anatomy. So she would do, even years and years ago, she'd come to me for a physiology question and I'd go to her for an anatomy question. She also was doing massage at the time. So I had studied naturopathy as well and Kay was teaching at a college and then she asked me to come and teach a subject that I didn't know anything about. <laughs> Thanks, Kay. <laughs> <laughs> and then I moved into into the accredited yoga teacher training course as well as teaching. Yeah, so it was Kay that got me into it. And is there something that really stands out to you, like something that you love most about training teachers? Well, I think it's because of what yoga has done for me and what I think it can do to people's lives. For me then to train a teacher or be part of training of a teacher that can give that to somebody else is is so worthwhile, is so stunning. 
This might be a bit of a change of topic, but how did you get involved in Yoga Australia? That was another one of those. Life served it up. Yeah, I think life (laughs) served it up. It was because of Lee's course. So Lee got this yoga teacher training course accredited and it sent shockwaves through the yoga community because up to that point, specific yoga schools had done their own training. And I don't remember... Exactly. But there was another yoga teacher called Helen Staley who was working at the Financial Planners Association. And I think part of the the shockwaves was being isolated as a teacher. So there was this group of accredited teachers. We weren't accredited. So where were we going to sit? So there was a group of seven of us who looked and said, well, what if we form an association where any yoga teacher can come into. So that's where it started. And it was about any teacher that had trained as a yoga teacher could come into this association. And it was about sharing and about communicating and it was about creating that conversation with other people, whereas it it had all been isolated into pockets of lineages up to that point. And, and you say there there were some shock waves. Was there any resistance at all when it was sort of coming together? There was a resistance in the first couple of years. I can remember going up to Sydney to talk to the Sydney yoga teachers and they were all a little bit concerned about what would be lost or who would control. But that didn't that hasn't happened. It's been amazing. It hasn't happened. Were you playing a different role within Yoga Australia before going on to become president? The Yoga Australia didn't exist. Oh, so you were the first president. Hmm. Congratulations. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, how did how did that actually happen? So we had this group of seven. We got the yellow pages out. We wrote a whole lot of letters to people saying we were thinking of forming an association for yoga teachers and we called it... We called it Yoga Teachers. Was it Yoga Teachers Association? I think it was Yoga Teachers Association, the initial name. I can't remember what year that was, but you'd know because it was incorporated at that time. And we So it would have been 20 years ago this year, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I believe so, yes. We organised a meeting and then we organised memberships and then it went from there. So what was it like being the first president? Being a president at that point, it was about getting people together And it was about setting up committees to look at the vision of the association, the standards that we wanted teachers to have. So Lee was on the first lot of committees. There was a whole lot of different people from different lineages that came together to do all all of that. So it was just a matter of chairing a meeting, basically, that the teachers did it all themselves. So everyone felt pretty equal in the group. Everyone was very equal in the group. There was no power stuff. I'm going to sit up here in my special chair and I'll be making the decisions. (laughs) Absolutely not. It was just about chairing a meeting. And why did you decide to take on the role of president? Well, it was the group of seven that said, well, we need a president. So Helen was going to be secretary. Alan Smith was going to be treasurer. So I was really just put into it. It was one of those things that it's not me. I don't do that. I've always shied away from it whenever people have said, no, you can do this role. And I've always said, I don't want to do big stuff. I don't want to be the fool. So I did it, but I did it. There was a job to do and you... you... There was a job to do and there was a a place to be filled and I filled it. And do you remember from that time, like, what were your biggest challenges? I think the biggest challenges were to 
get people to understand that there was no subversion about trying to make an lineage less, that this was the only way to go. The conversation that could be had between teachers, the communication that could be had, what could be shared was more important than anything else. So there was that was the, the hardest bit to like get over. people felt a bit threatened. People felt threatened. They felt threatened by the course to start with and then during the association they felt threatened again. But so it's 20 years. I don't know how many members Yoga Australia's got. You probably know more about it than I do. Not off the top of my head, but... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Those figures have come up in a previous interview mm. and they've already left my brain. <laughs> it, is, it is in the thousands though, so yeah. 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 And it's all it's statewide, mm. which is the other really good thing. And they've kept on to their, they've kept their principles. So they really do want to keep at least 350 hours going because the accredited course doesn't run anymore. It, we went for a re-accreditation with the CAE, and which was then also Box Hill Tech, and got it through, but they wouldn't run it and they wouldn't sell it to anyone. Hello, Ran here to talk about our Patreon page. Patreon is a way that you can help support the podcast for as little as $1 a month. Higher tiers get access to extra special content as well as a listing on our website and a shout out on the podcast. We use these funds to transcribe our favourite episodes so they're accessible to the hearing impaired or anyone who would prefer to read our interviews. You can read them on our website at podcast.flowartist.com. If you enjoy our conversations with amazing teachers, we would love your support. Just go to patreon.com slash flow artist podcast. All right, that's more than enough from me. Let's get back to our conversation with Josie. What do you feel were your biggest successes while you were president? Just to get it up and running. Just to get it up and running and accepted. Was it quite a daunting task at the time? It was, but there were a lot of people that believed in it. You know, you had a few people that didn't or a few people that thought it should be done a different way. Particularly, they thought it was Geeta run and it wasn't. Geeta had nothing to do with it. The fact that we were seven Geeta teachers made absolutely no... We weren't going to run it as a Geeta school. We were going to run it as a yoga teachers association. So there was that to overcome as well. Was there seven Gita teachers just because no one else had volunteered? No, because nobody else had thought about starting it. So that was just you all knew each other, you came up with the initiative and it went from there. I think there was something, I think we talked to Lee as well at the time about we're thinking of forming an association and he was really... He was really behind it, so he, there wasn't any problem with it. But I don't think anyone else had thought, well, as far as I know, nobody else had thought about it. Sachananda have their own association, and I think Integral, every every training school has their own group of alumni that go through there, but there's a lot that don't, and some training schools then disappear, and there's still a yoga teacher there who's got nowhere to go. And as well, like sometimes as a teacher, you might train in one style and then your practice evolves. And I know that this has been a thing for some Iyengar teachers over the years. Some associations really require that you teach what you were taught as a teacher in their style. And then when you evolve and want to do different things, like people feel a bit cast out. So it's really great to have an association that's for all yoga teachers. 
And the workshops that they organise are, are varied, so you've got the chance of knowing what's going on, going to another different style of workshop, doing something different to evolve your own yoga practice. And that evolution of your own practice and your own teaching is absolutely necessary. Otherwise, it sets in concrete and it does. it's not living. And that must be something you've really seen because you would have taught so many teachers over the years and then probably stayed in touch with them as they've gone on and been part of Yoga Australia and done their own workshops and things. Are there any common threads that you notice for individual teachers, I guess, or just advice that you feel would be good for everyone? I think the most important thing I think for all teachers is to keep that open mind and go and experience other ways, just like you do in life. Yoga's no different. You can go and experience other ways of eating and other ways of living. And I think yoga teachers need to be the same. They need to experience other things. If they don't like it, they don't. They can leave it. So you know, doing workshops with other people gives you might give you something else that really helps in your own practice of teaching. Something that you'd never thought of, and something that your teacher who taught you had never thought of, but really makes sense to you now, and you incorporate it. And I don't think that's a bastardization. I think that's an evolution of how things can be. You're doing this to allow people to be their own person, to create a healthier body and mind and spirit and essence. And so you do this out of the out of the spirit of, I can't think of the word. I'm getting what you're saying though. It doesn't come from a place of closed-mindedness or rules or dogma, like yoga is all no. about observation and being present. And even just on a physical level, I've noticed this for myself, if you're teaching a lot, or if you're practicing a lot, it's so healthy for your body to do different movements. It's like we need that. And we need to do that. We need to sort of and feel it because it can become almost so ingrained if you keep doing the same thing that you do it out of rote mm. and not out of awareness. And that becomes, that is, that doesn't work. It's like sort of, okay, I'm over there and I'm just doing this and but I'm not physically present, I'm not physically aware, I'm not in that space. And I think that that's really important. That's why, for me, it needs other things. It needs another, yeah, I need to learn. I need to keep learning. Otherwise, I become stagnant. And, you know, it's good for our body, it's good for our brains, that whole neuroplasticity thing. (laughs) (laughs) And something that I've noticed through a few of your answers, even right back from your own school days where you weren't offered something in PE that you could connect to. And then in other classes that you went to, you felt like there weren't variations that were right for you. And I'm sure that this is something that played into how you trained teachers. It's so powerful to have a diversity of different options to suit a diversity of different people's needs and different bodies. And I guess that's also part of my medical background. There are certain postures that I will never, ever be able to do. I don't have the physical length of legs to be able to sit in, what's that pose called? Oh, like lotus pose? Yes. Padmasana? No, not going to happen. And I think having that awareness that not everybody is the same, and particularly if you're teaching older people, which I am now, 
is that they can still do yoga, but they might need to do it differently. They might need to sit on a much higher cushion. They might need to not put their legs into the side of their thigh, but stick it out the side. It's about what you give as the concept of the pose that is the most important. It's function, not form. And that's been my biggest thing. You know, sometimes I say, I don't need my arms and legs to do yoga. I can move my torso around. And it's so powerful. It's so powerful to get that message. It's like yoga is not about the pose. It's not about looking a certain way. It's about what this practice can do for us. Yeah. It's about what it does for you. It's about the awareness it creates. It's about the space it creates within you. And once you've created that space in you, you've got room for things to move in and out. You've taught many people throughout the years, and I'm just wondering if there's any sort of common threads amongst the diverse people that you've you've taught and, and sort of shared time with. One of the things that you see at the end of a teacher training, at the beginning of a teacher training, and the teacher trainees don't see it, but you do as a teacher, is their evolution, their their change. They all come in, they've, they've all got that, they all want to give out what they've received. They've done yoga. It's done this for them. They want to share that with other people. So they come in with all that really good intent and they leave with it tripled and doubled and quadrupled. But their growth and what you see as their growth is a real privilege to watch and be part of. I think something else I've noticed as well from all of the people I've spoken to who've done teacher training, everyone comes out just thinking how much more there is to yeah. learn. Oh, and still is, and still <laughs> is. And I mean, I, I keep getting the dates mixed up of when I finished. It was either in 91, 89 or 91 or something. It doesn't really matter. When you finish, you always learn something. There's always something that somebody says and it's that aha moment and I can remember one one time in a class and I was doing, it was a forward bend, standing forward bend. And, you know, me being a nurse, you'd think I'd know my physiology and the way, the way my body was. I was trying to do it from my waist and she said something about the hips and all of a sudden it went, ah, okay. It was just the way... And people need to find their own voice and talk about it in their own, with their own language because if you do it from a rote perspective, if I use a script from somebody else, it's not me. I need to put my own words into it. And they, they're the ones that end up resonating with people because you're coming from a genuine spot, not from something that is rote learned. Absolutely. Just out of curiosity, are you still involved with Yoga Australia at all? No, not since I retired. Right. So I retired. I mean, I, I, I'm still a, I still get the newsletters and I still look and I still, but I'm not involved. One of the things I think was really important is that, and it happens in, in lots of other places as well, when you leave, you need to leave because somebody else, they don't need to be constantly reminded this is how we did it in the past they need to move it forward, which is what every person has done. They've all moved it forward and they don't need to have people. I mean, if you want to be involved, you want to be involved, but no. It needs to have that constant movement of people in it to be able to grow, to be able to live. So you have, you have to pass that torch on, I guess. You do. Yeah. And I think that happens in, 
you know, it's not just in yoga. I think it happens in, in lots of things that you do. You pass it on to somebody else so that somebody else can add to it if it's your time to go. From your vantage point, what do you think are the greatest challenges that yoga teachers and I guess by association Yoga Australia are facing today? I think it's the function form thing. There's a lot of emphasis on the pose from what I can see. And I think the other challenge is that the teacher training needs to be comprehensive. There's there's no way in, in such a short time if you're doing 200 hours that you get the philosophy and the necessary knowledge to be able to teach safely. And the safely is one of my biggest concerns. There, I mean, there's lots of stuff that you can learn from books as well. So I don't disagree with that at at all. But I think it's the amount that you can't get in, in that short amount of time. I definitely know every time I go to a different anatomy-based training or training that just has an element of anatomy, there'll always be like another penny that drops or another layer of understanding that sinks in or even just something I've been told many times that I've forgotten about over the years that I need that reminder of. It's like we can only absorb so much information in one go. Exactly. You can say, and it's happened, and I'm sure it's happened to you in a yoga class, that you gave an instruction and then somebody turns around and said, that was a really good line that you used to do this. And you think, I think I've said this. Um, <laughs> I say this every class. <laughs> yeah. Why yeah. have you just heard? And I mean, I'm, I'm the same. I've done the same. People have said, it's like driving somewhere. Oh, that's a new building. No, it's been there for nearly 15 years. You've just driven straight past it. And it's, it's the same with, with teaching. You might say, I'm a firm believer in when the time is right, you will hear something, you will do something. That to me is really important. If you force something, it's not part of you. It's superimposed on top of you, but it doesn't go into the essence of who you are. And I guess sometimes you know, you, you might need a certain series of experiences to happen before you actually or before you hear that thing that just that suddenly clicks. So yeah, yeah, or sometimes you think you've got a concept and then you just grasp it on mm. a much deeper level. Mm. And that was, you know, that was the same in the three starts to, to do yoga, but there was something that drove me the third time. And it was obviously the right time then, whereas before it wasn't. If we were to look into a crystal ball, um, what do you think the future of yoga looks like in, say, 10 to 20 years? I'm hoping that the future will be that we'll have left this form stuff behind and really gone into the function. So allowing your own spirituality to to come through without telling you what to do, but allowing that spirituality and that essence and that emotional, the mind-body connection to come into, into the practice without making it too difficult to understand. So the East meets West. It's the science meets the esoteric that I hope will come out. It's almost like sometimes you think, well, we have to have the great, you know, we have to go over the top to come back to a centre. And maybe I'm hoping that we're coming back to a centre about what is 
the essence, what is really the, the, the fundamental essence and practice of, of yoga in a Western, with a Western body, in a Western society, in a Western civilization. Like that pendulum. Can we marry the two? That mm. pendulum swinging back. Yes, that's what I'm hoping it is, is happening. I'd like it to swing back to centre, and it's always going to swing a little bit, but I'm hoping that it's always been, and I guess it's, it's part of who I am, my science and my naturopathy needed to marry. And I think my Western science and yoga also need to marry. There needs to be that that acceptance of both in, and the use of both. I'm just wondering if you notice this in your classes, because you mentioned that you teach mainly older people now. Do older people seem more able to let go of focusing on what physically what their bodies can do and maybe being a little bit competitive with themselves and are able to drop more into these deeper, more wisdom layers of the yoga practice. I think so. Yeah. I think so. I mean, some of the younger ones do too, but I think when you, and particularly if, and I've done it, you know, I I did a a class for a lot of people with injuries and got a problem with knee and I've got a problem with hips and they've got a problem with, with this. I mean, I've got a back problem, so... I have to do certain things a certain way. But once you've accepted the fact that it isn't, I don't have to sit in lotus to do this, but I can get that alignment through my spine and I can feel the energy in my body and I can feel it in certain parts without having to do that form. Once people get over that, and older people will accept that a lot better, they stop railing against their disability or their impairment, or whatever you want to call it there. Say someone were thinking of either joining Yoga Australia or maybe volunteering for the organisation or maybe even thinking of taking on a leadership role, would you have any advice for them? I guess there might be three different pieces of advice there. There might be one. I think it's an open-mindedness and it's an acceptance of what the association's trying to do. And if that comes in with it, the rest will follow. So can I help? Can I allow, can I do that helping, whichever way you do it, whether it's in a major role or a minor role, to be able to evolve, seeing that this is an association that is really powerful because it belongs to all teachers, not just one group. How can I allow it to grow? How can, what can I do to allow it to grow? I think that's what gift have I got? What special talent have I got that will enable that to move forward and become bigger and better? Beautiful. Because, yeah, I guess the, the, the sense I'm getting from doing these interviews that it is many voices coming together, and mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of a beautiful thing, really, if you think about it. And it, it's the respect of those voices. It's the mm. respect of the different voices that is the most, the, the best thing that comes into it. Yes, you've got that. I respect that and I've got this and you respect that. And is there a common ground that we can we can meet at? Or do we need to have a common ground? We, we can sort of disagree but still move on and exactly. work together. Right. Yeah. Nice. We're nearing the end of our time together. So if you could distill everything you've learnt and everything that you teach down to one core essence, <laughs> what do you think that one thing would be? Respect. So it's an essence of respecting me, first of all. I can't respect anyone else if I don't respect me. And 
then that goes into everything else. So the respect is part of the acceptance of who you are and what you are and what you can be. I don't know if that answers your question. Absolutely. That's mm. fundamental. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> And that was our episode, folks. I always like to hear about the early days of yoga in Australia and how things have evolved since then, and I hope you do too. There's some really interesting stuff there, and Josie has a lot of knowledge and wisdom to share. So for our next episode, we've just passed two years since we started the podcast, so it is time for our annual review episode. It's titled Two Years On, Now What? We'll be talking about some moments that have inspired us during the podcast, what we've learned and what we think is in store for the future. We've got some questions coming in from some very special guests, so look out for that episode one week from now. Our theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul and is used with permission. Get us music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Joe and I would like to honour the elders of these wisdom traditions of yoga and mindfulness from India and beyond, as well as honouring the traditional custodians of the land where this podcast is recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Thank you so much for listening. Joe and I really appreciate you spending your precious time with us. Aroha nui. Big, big love.